Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Fascism conjures up visions of Hitler and Mussolini, but countries don't have to be fascist to have fascist politics. Jason Stanley is a philosophy professor from Yale. His book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, was released last fall. Jason's speaking Saturday at the Levy Center in Evanston. And thanks a lot for joining us, Jason Stanley. Thanks for having me on the show. You know, I think a lot of people think of what is happening now as populism, like right-wing populism, not fascist politics. How do you describe fascist politics? Well, first I want to say that populism is is a kind of nebulous expression. I mean, any word that, that incorporates Bernie Sanders and Adolf Hitler, I think, is too... Uh, sort of vapid. So I've, I have problems with the term fa- populism. You use the term right-wing populism. So I then want to know what goes into the content of right-wing there. If it's ultra-ethnic nationalism, uh, white nationalism, uh, or Hindu nationalism for that matter, uh, uh, with, with, um, with militarism uh, and uh, a call, uh, sort of a call uh, a call for victimization of the dominant group, like saying that the the group that has always dominated is now under threat. Well, now you're talking about structures that do look very similar uh, to the kinds of politics we saw we see in uh, in fascism. You've got a very tidy definition of fascism and and can and whip through it pretty quickly. Um, how, tell us what it is. You mean well. In my book, I have a 10-part definition of fascism. There are 10 chapters, each corresponding to a different element of fascist politics. Um, I mean, I, rather than – I could go through, through all 10, but instead I think a straightforward way of thinking of fascism is remember, remember Hitler's uh, book, My Struggle? It's called My Struggle because at the core of fascism is the idea that it's all about winning. Um, there are winners and there's losers. Losers have no value. Winners have value. Uh, you gain value by victory in a struggle. Except fascism doesn't think of the struggle as only between individuals. In fascist ideology, certain groups are hardworking. Other groups are lazy. Uh, certain groups have a great civilization, have created a great civilization, and that civilization is under threat. Other groups, uh, are, you know, as Hitler says, are civilization destroyers. Uh, so, so fascism is uh, a social Darwinism of the group. Um, it's about uh, it's about value is convey, conveyed by uh, by being part of a group uh, that is just superior to other groups. One of the key attributes is a mythic past, and we see this with a lot of different leaders around the world. I mean, and sometimes it almost seems like any nationalistic leader seems to appeal to a mythic past. How do you, how do you tell when it's, uh, when it's kind of a fascist mythic past? Excellent. So I said earlier uh, when I was talking about uh, social Darwinism that the idea behind in fascist ideology is that your group, you know, your group uh, was, uh, is great, and its greatness is attested for by its great past that is now threatened by liberalism, by feminism. So, uh, so what? So th- there's 
there's two. So what you the, the sort of fascist mythic past is in, is intended to evoke a, an empire that has been humiliated. Uh, you know, that once ruled over others uh, and, and faces humiliation by immigration, by ethnic minorities, by, uh, by uh, humili- humi- humiliation in world politics. If, on the other hand, an, a politician is just saying, I like our traditions, aren't our traditions great, let's keep our traditions, that's not worrisome, that's just social conservatism. Now, the um, one of the interesting aspects of your book yeah, that is kind of related to this is the debates that go on in college campuses today. And there are a lot of uh, right-wing conservative, uh, you know, white nationalist types who want free speech on college campuses. And they want to yeah. be able to go to college campuses and, and bring their message. And you know, uh, and the rest of college is not uh, – it's not open. It's not free. It's not uh, – you know, they're not doing freedom if they don't allow them. Uh, what do you make of this conversation that's going on? So, so in the first instance uh, – as you, you described it as debates happening on college campuses. Uh, that's a kind of funny description because they're not actually happening on college campuses. They're happening off of college campuses about an entirely fictitious situation on college campuses. So in, in times uh, of far-right politics, you know, Viktor Orban has dismantled Central European University uh, – you know, the idea is what these what fast people, what fascist politicians or neo-fascist politicians do is they try to spread panic about universities being leftist, uh, uh, you know, dens of Marxism uh, and leftism and indoctrination camps for leftists. Now, none of this is true. Uh, the economics department at Yale has very few, maybe a, some people who voted for Hillary Clinton, but very few Marxists. So, uh so there's this panic in these moments about universities. Uh, so what what's ha- so what's happening now is they're trying to paint universities as hypocritical about free speech. Um, uh, so now in universities you can find lots of speech, you can find lots of different political viewpoints. So I'm skeptical there's any reality. Uh, I mean, being on a college campus, I don't see the reality. But uh, but the goal is to to create to delegitimize uh, universities and then present right wing nationalists as free speech martyrs and and this is an old old theme you know right wing nationalists far right nationalists representing themselves as free speech martyrs Julius Streicher the editor of Der Stürmer was accused of hate speech. And then, you know, created this fur about how he's being persecuted for his speech. So, you know, it is a familiar tactic to use the liberal, cherished liberal ideal of free speech uh, as a kind of weapon and to claim that your uh, sort of to- your sort of toxic speech is being suppressed, thereby getting more attention, giving more attention to your toxic speech. I'm talking with Jason Stanley. He's professor of philosophy at Yale, and we're talking about some of the ideas in his book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. It was released last fall, and Jason's speaking Saturday at the Levy Center in Evanston. Uh, I wanted to uh, ask 
about patriarchal families and the role it plays in fascist uh, ideology. And, and and some talk about gender roles. There's quite a discussion about gender roles in your in your book. Um, explain what a why these uh, fascist leaders all really want patriarchal family things going on. So. Uh, if you look at the 1950s literature on fascism, this is a huge theme. Adorno is the authoritarian personality. Uh, Wilhelm Reich's book on fascism has uh, cha- several chapters about the patriarchal family, the authoritarian father. So, there's, so principally, the idea is the, the authoritarian family is the structure that a fascist leader wants to replicate on the national scale. There's the strong father, there's the woman who needs to be protected, and the children who need to be raised with authority and a strong hand. So it's not a democratic institution, the authoritarian family. It's not like everyone votes and decides together. You have one leader, the man. Um, So that is one reason. It replicates the, the authoritarian family the patriarchal family, where the father rules by strength uh, and uh, is not a democracy, and it reflects the, structure, the structural system, value system, uh, of, the authorita- of, of authoritarianism. Um, now, of course, it's appropriate to be authoritarian with six-year-old children, perhaps, or use authority. It's not appropriate uh, to, be a, to, to act like the citizens of your country are like your three-year-old children. So in a lot of these situations, LGBT rights, uh, gender roles, they, the authoritarian leader doesn't seem to like those. Yeah, so, so I didn't answer that. I didn't address that part of the question. So, uh, so what the, the core of fascism, remember, is hierarchy. So hierarchy between groups. The first hierarchy sort of, you know, first hierarchy we have in humanity is is the supposed hierarchy of is patriarchy men over women it's like the the ur hierarchy uh so so fascism in fascist politics everyone like uh, people are it, it's anti-equality so the idea is that nature gives us certain roles so fascist ideology says nature gives us certain roles Certain groups are better than other groups. Nature determines all of this. And the sort of core example of this is the hierarchy of men over women. Transgender rights, particularly trans women, threaten this because uh, patriarchy places men over women. And trans women are are women who choose to be women uh, when they could be men. So that inverts a hierarchy that is at the basis of hierarchical thinking. Um, so, yeah. You know, we've got a clip of President Trump and President Bolsonaro uh, talking at their press conference the other day, and then several other um, clips that we'd like your reaction to. And uh, so, here is here is some of uh, President Trump's um, discussions and ideas out there. 
In conclusion, may I say that Brazil and the United States stand side by side in their efforts to ensure liberties and respect to traditional family lifestyles, respect to God, our Creator, against the gender ideology or the politically correct attitudes and against fake news. Those groups of folks that are running Facebook and Google and Twitter, it's collusive and it's very, very fair to say that we have to do something about it. And that includes networks. I call it fake news. I'm very proud to hear the president use the term fake news. We are coming off a weekend that had many people openly questioning the president's sense. This has to do with 50 messages over the course of a couple of days. Trump's weekend messages also asked whether the federal government should, quote, look into why Saturday Night Live is allowed to make fun of him. Another big story breaking, Michael Cohen, who now says he, well, he had volunteered to testify before a committee of Congress and now says he will not because of threats to his family. I would say he's been threatened by the truth. He's only been threatened by the truth, and uh, uh, he doesn't want to do that probably for me or other of his clients. President Trump saying his police and military supporters could make things very bad for his opposition. Here's the quote. This is the president. I can tell you I have the support of the police, the support of the military, the support of the bikers for Trump. I have the tough people, but they don't play it tough until they go to a certain point, and then it would be very bad very bad. Indeed, given my experience working for Mr. Trump, I fear that if he loses the election in 2020, that there will never be a peaceful transition of power. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist. Okay. I'm a nationalist. And there's a clip of some of the things that are going on out there. And there's a lot there. Uh, There's threats. There's fake news. There's the traditional uh, family ideology thing at the beginning. Um, I I mean, there's a lot going on, Jason. Pick pick and choose there. Okay. So uh, one thing that people said to me when I was first working on this was, uh, well, Mr. Trump doesn't uh, doesn't use – Threats of violence, extrajudicial violence, and threats of using the military against civilian populations. Um, he doesn't. Uh, there's no threat of him uh, abdicating the electoral process. People would say things like that. They would say, Vi- it, because in fascism, glorifies violence. Fa- Bolsonaro, for instance, ran a, a, a way more fascist campaign than, than even Mr. Trump. I mean, he would appear with assault r- rifles and. He would praise the military dictatorship. Um, but now you, you've always seen with Trump, I would respond a couple of years ago by saying, look, Trump always talks about generals. He's obsessed with the military, the military parade. You definitely have this focus on, you know, putting the military first, which, it, which you know, the military is an important institution, but we are a democratic society. So that that's weird. And, uh, and that focus on militarism um, – while not fascist in pre- uh, previously, uh, is nevertheless clearly present and not completely consistent with our democratic norms. However, in what you showed, <laughs> in the clips you showed, uh, he is uh, doing all the things that people said that he wouldn't. He's saying that he's talking about um, having uh, an extrajudicial uh, uh, violent group uh, that fights for him, the b- bikers for Trump in that in that passage. Um, he's talking about uh, 
he's talking about authoritarian, using the military in anti-democratic ways. Um, so uh, now uh, let's move to the nationalism point. So uh, this is a complicated topic that I talk about in detail in my book. Uh, there, there are unproblematic nationalisms, uh, uh, the kind of nationalism you find found find in, with like Gandhi, for instance. Uh, Gandhi was just Gandhi promoted Indian nationalism because they were colonized. So it's okay if you're under threat, if you are the, a minority group, um, to to stand up for national traditions that are being stamped out. But in fascist nationalism, what you have is the dominant group saying that uh, saying that you know it should be respected, admired, etc. That it's under threat, uh, and that's worrisome because that's not about equality; that's about domination. So, and when when Trump talks about nationalism, he's clearly not talking about you know anti-colonial nationalism. <laughs> he's not talking about black nationalism. So you have to ask yourself. So you know, and the United States is is uh, made of different ethnic groups and different religions. So I'd want to know what kind of nationalism fills in the blank there. And I worry, and many many. Uh, I worry, and other people celebrate, that what fills in the blank there is white nationalism. Um, so uh, now about the uh, – the, uh, there was also uh, references to legal attacks on the press. Um, you know, <laughs> Saturday Night Live is not allowed – I mean, I'm not sure how much to take that seriously. Uh, but, uh, but attacks – the, the anti-press vocabulary and rhetoric is deeply concerning. I want to add a final point which is just to call yourself a nationalist, um, it, to call yourself a nationalist, if you're the president of the United States or if you're the president of a powerful country, um, rather than an anti struggling anti-colonial movement or uh, black nationalists, uh, to call yourself a, a nationalist um, is to signal uh, allegiance to, uh, uh, to well, there's two... Right now, there's there's all of these ultranationalist leaders around the world that Trump is aligning himself with: uh, Bolsonaro, um, Orbán of Hungary, uh, Putin. So he's aligning himself with that group, and that group is uh, not very democratic. So those are some of some of the obviously concerning themes in in those quotes, those clips. Oh, in your book, there was a really interesting section on uh, kind of things that are uh, the antidote to fascism, things that stress our common humanity, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, things like labor unions are are something, and. Um, there was a section on right-to-work laws and uh, where they came from. They came from someone named Vance Muse. And what, what, where, where, how, does he, how does that fit into what you're thinking about? So this was something that actually surprised me when I was doing my research. A theme that you find in anti-fascist writings, and I include the writings of black Americans writing about racism, particularly in the South, uh, but also in the north, but uh, but uh, it, uh, a theme both there and in European fascism is uh, is the attack on the labor union. So Martin Niemöller, uh, his famous uh, poem: "First they came for the socialists, but I was not a socialist, so I said nothing. 
Then they came for the trade unionists, and I was not a trade unionist, so, so I, I and I said nothing, etc. Until and then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. He explicitly mentions trade union unionists as a target of the Nazis, and uh, so you find you f- so you find anti-fascists and uh, people fighting against and people fighting against anti-black racism in the United States. Um, all talking about the importance of unions. Um, so uh, what unions do, ideally, I mean, unions have a troubled racial past in the United States, but ideally what unions do is bring people together of different races, religions, and genders to fight for common material interests. When politics is healthy, people care about, you know, getting another day off, getting a, a, getting a raise. They don't care about you know, these, these ephemeral, uh, issues about, you know, national pride and, uh, and humiliation. They care about, like, what, you know, will they get an extra day off? Um, so unions focus, refocus our politics from the kinds of things that fascism makes us think about, uh, like cultural humiliation, you know, uh, what, uh, the, uh, the Jews dominating Hollywood, uh, things like that, uh, conspiracy theories like that. Um, unions turn our attention away from that and towards uh, material concerns that bind all humans together. And so they're weapons against racial, uh, against, uh, racial inequality, the, the things that fascists use. So that's why fascists go after unions. Now, Vance Muse, the right-to-work laws originated uh, as methods. Uh, what Vance Muse wrote is that is that unions are dangerous because they bring black people and white people together. Um, he says at one point, uh, you know, he says at one point, um, the, the, uh, the unions, uh, uh, you, I quote this in my book, you, you, your, your white sister will have to call uh, a black man her brother, you know, if this is, this is the goal of unions. So, uh, so the right to work laws were motivated by the idea that unions are communist plots. Uh, uh, in Vance Muse's case, he was anti-Semitic, and so he thought they were, uh, as Hitler often did, uh, Jews were behind them. And their intention was to bring people of different races together and lead to things like miscegenation, and which is always a theme in fascism. And, you know. Uh, you're always putting in laws against uh, intermarriage between uh, different ethnic groups. So right-to-work laws originated as methods to uh, – as uh, with the same toxic brew of comments about unions that you find in Mein Kampf. Um, Jason Stanley is a philosophy professor from Yale. His book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, was released last fall. Jason is speaking on Saturday at the Levy Center at Evanston at 2 p.m. Check it out. And uh, fascinating talking with you, Jason Stanley. Are you optimistic about stuff, Jason? Uh, Yeah. I mean, we're in a country where uh, black Americans have survived and uh, gotten the vote and, you know, the civil rights movement happened here uh, in World War II. Uh, we helped defeat Nazis. So I am, opt- I, you know, uh, I, I'm a cop, you know, the cup is half full. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about uh, Central American migrants in Mexico. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. 
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I've been talking recently with the participants in the Eyes on Mexico series at the Posen Family Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago. And today we're going to talk about the treatment of Central American migrants in Mexico with Helena Olia. She is an international human rights lawyer who serves as Alianza America's human rights advisor. She's a lecturer at the University of Illinois at Chicago in the departments of criminology, law and justice, and Latin American and Latino studies. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jerome. Um, I wanted to ask about um, the rhetoric you hear about Central American migrants in Mexico, because we were just talking about President Trump and all the things he says about the other. And these people migrating across Mexico are the other big time. Uh, we hear about caravans. We hear, uh, you know, about you know what bad people these people are. Uh, we hear that they're being victimized. Uh, what? How do you? How do you sort out all that rhetoric when when you hear it coming at you? Well, I think it's a very important challenge for us as an organization, as you were describing. What we see is that there is a great difference between what you actually see on the ground and what you hear. Uh, what we observe is that it's mostly young people particularly young men. You do observe a lot of women. Many of them are with their children, very young children as well. And, you know, they are fleeing. Many of them are fleeing poverty, but many of them are fleeing violence. So we have this mixed flow of individuals who deserve protection, but that are being viewed as the other, this threatening other. And so it's the rhetoric is so disparaging different from the actual reality on the ground that it's it's outstanding, I would say. And how has Mexico treated the people moving across Mexico? Uh, there, it seems like we're in a situation that is changing right now as we speak. Uh, in the past, the governments there have felt some obligation to do what the U.S. wants. I don't know whether I would use the past tense to describe what is going on, to be very honest with you. But I would say that there is an important difference. And the difference was that until the prior administration, until uh, Peña Nieto, what the Mexican government was doing was denying them any permit to travel across Mexico. And so any encounter with the authorities meant for this individuals, this mixed flows of asylum seekers and migrants, the possibility of being deported back to their countries of origin. The great difference with López Obrador is the fact that they are now being granted this transit or temporary visa or, or card, as it, they call it in Mexico, that allows them to transit freely, authorized through the country, they have a work authorization, and they can enter and leave the country for one year. And that is a significant change of circumstances from them. Now they do not have to fear the authorities all of the time. And I think that that is a substantive change in their conditions. One of the things I saw was that um, Lopez Obrador was interested in having a um, an aid package to Central America to help stem the tide of refugees. Um, is, that, uh, is that a big difference? Is that a sensible uh, thing to do? Well, what is interesting is that there was a similar aid package under Obama. If you remember and you go back to 2014 and that humanitarian crisis at the time, 
Obama also tried to put in place this investment package addressing the conditions of the countries of origin. And so what he did was he offered some U.S. funds and he also asked the countries in, in, in Central America, particularly Honduras, Guatemala and El Salvador, to contribute with their funds and projects towards developing and improving the conditions in the countries of origin with the expectation that economic improvement would result in less people fleeing those countries. And then now what we have is a new branding with, though, a leadership role of Mexico. And I think that that perhaps changes in a way how it is going to be implemented in practice. But I just saw that in the meeting of Jared Kushner with López Obrador in Mexico on Tuesday evening, they talked about the U.S. also signing this agreement, which is, I think, breaking news. It's interesting to see that the U.S. is somehow going to be involved in it. All right. And, but it hasn't worked in the past um, well, why do you think that is? I mean, there are the, the structural problems there. I mean, it's not necessarily something you can fix with uh, an aid package. Well, I think that it's much more complex than simply, you know, setting up maquilas or other kinds of industries that may create some job opportunities in the countries of origin. The situation is much more complex than that. In our view, a major piece of the puzzle is strengthening the rule of law. And that is not part of these packages. It's very important for the persons living in these countries to feel that they are safe, that the police will protect them, that there is a trustful, fair administration of justice. When those parts of the package are not included, you know, there's no job that is going to make you consider staying if you're not safe. And we're a long way from that in a place like Honduras, where most people don't view the presidential election as legitimate and the Police seem to be uh, in cahoots with organized crime as often as not. And I mean, you have U.S. judges in this country saying it's like a, a, a narco state or something. It is. Uh, the situation in Honduras is particularly troublesome, you know, and it's not looking any better. And we also have elections in Guatemala in June. And the situation in Guatemala is also of particular concern. There are over 16 presidential candidates. <laughs> not pre-candidates, actual candidates. And we are already observing some efforts by some groups to prevent some of those candidates to be able to actually run. So it's it's a particular concerning situation. We have the Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala. That situation is not good. Uh, well, can the U.S. do something about that? Is that something that um, you could change if you wanted to? Ah, absolutely. I think that the U.S. plays a very important role. Going back to Honduras, it was the Trump administration, the first one to congratulate uh, the president of Honduras after he won the election, Juan Orlando Hernandez. When there was great concern about the fairness of that electoral process, when the OAS had been involved and it was requesting for the elections to be held in a different date later because there was great question about electoral fraud. And President Trump congratulated him. So the U.S. is involved. The U.S. is not requesting or exerting any pressure on these governments to improve their human rights situation, to improve the administration of justice. And this has certainly undermined the conditions on the ground in these countries. I'm talking with Helena Olia. She's an international human rights lawyer who serves as an advisor to Alianza America as their human rights advisor. We're talking about the treatment of Central American migrants in Mexico. Um, one of the things uh, that's going on is the Trump administration wants to take asylum seekers and whip them back to Mexico. Uh, 
How do what would happen then? What uh, do you? <laughs> what is happening you? now? These are the so-called migration protection protocols, which are not for migrants and are not protection. What they are doing is they are sending back, they are returning asylum seekers from the U.S. to Mexico, to different points on the ground now in three different border places, and they are telling them to wait in Mexico until the day of their hearing. And this undermines any protections. They are not safe. They have a work authorization that is granted to them through this card. But at any point, Mexico may deport them back to their countries of origin. They do not have the protection of the non-refoulement, this specific protection granted to asylum seekers. So the situation is particularly troublesome from the perspective of their safety and their due process rights. How do you find in Mexicali an attorney, a U.S. attorney who can help you with your asylum case in the U.S.? How do you find an expert witness that can help you with your asylum case? The situation is particularly difficult and it's a way to undermine their asylum claims with the hope that many of them end up giving up and consider other options. Is there any um, way to bring the change the way the U.S. is doing business here? Is there any way people can appeal to a, another authority that would have some influence? In the U.S., you mean? Well, under, under any international body, the United Nations, the Organization <laughs> of American States. The, well, uh, if, if you do something <laughs> wrong, uh, who, who, who calls them out? Well, in, in the context of Latin America, the Organization of the American States and particularly the human rights bodies, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and the Inter-American Court have played key roles in changing the situation in human rights. And many of the rulings have really changed the landscaping regarding the protection of both migrants and refugees specifically. So they could play a role. The problem, though, is that the U.S. is not a party to the American Convention on Human Rights and they really do not care for the opinion of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. But the UN could play definitely a stronger role. There is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and they are on the ground in Mexico. Their operations are increasing. However, they are increasing because also of greater funding from the U.S. And that gives us some pause of concern as to whether they will be willing to raise their voices and criticize the U.S. government. About how many uh, migrants do you know are, are, are coming, are asylum seekers who are coming to the U.S. are getting tossed back to Mexico now? Uh, it's in Tijuana, there are over 200 now. They just started last week the program in Mexicali, and they are also starting it in Piedras Negras, and the figures are relatively low. So they are very good. If something that this administration has learned is that they start with small projects in different points of the border, and they, they just increase them gradually and gradually, and the numbers are just going to hike up as we move forward. There is no, we do not know what criteria they use, how they decide to toss someone back, and who they decide that they, that they can stay in the U.S., but we know that mothers with children were tossed back to Mexico, for instance. Did Mexico have an option here? Yes, of course it did. It did. Mexico could claim that immediately as someone crosses to the U.S. to seek asylum, their humanitarian visa is expired, and they, it could claim that it will not accept them back. This, uh, you know, <laughs> this claim that these are two unilateral actions, one on the part of the U.S. and one on the part of Mexico, it's an absolute lie. We all know that they agreed that this program was going to go forward, 
And what is really turning Mexico is to, like other countries that we know, do the same, for instance, for the European Union, like a Turkey or a Libya in, of the past. Uh, when you look at the future, what do you think is going to come down here? Is, uh, is it more of the same or um, is it worse? I think it's actually worse. I think that the asylum system in the U.S. has been systematically undermined under the Trump administration. And I think it's going to take a long time for it to be where it was even at the beginning of this administration. So the system is very old. It could be improved. There is the need for a greater number of asylum officials and there is a greater number for, for immigration judges. Greater due process protections should also be incorporated into the system. Some kind of legal aid for those who cannot afford an attorney should also be part of the system. But we are way behind. We're just observing how the system is crumbling down under this administration, in spite of all of the litigation and the fights. Because we have to say that many in the U.S. are pulling their best fight, but it's very difficult. Helena Olia is an international human rights lawyer who serves as Alianza America's human rights advisor. She was a participant in the Eyes on Mexico series at the Posen Family Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago. We've been talking with some of the people involved. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the rights of people from Central America and Mexico. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we're going to have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. And we'll talk about the International Service Summit coming up in Naperville. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism series where we feature people who make the world a better place. For the second year, the Rotary Club of Naperville is holding its International Service Summit. It's April 6th at Benedictine University in Lyle. The co-chairs of the International Service Summit are Chuck Newman and Richard Tatara, and they're here to fill us in on the Service Summit. Great to see you guys. I am affiliated with this thing. I am I'm moderating a panel at the International Service Summit. I went last year and um, feel a great affinity for the for the summit because it's kind of like the old Global Activism Expo. <laughs> well, it's been wonderful having you part of our event, and, and you do such a great job in leading the, the panel discussion, and we're excited. Uh, we've already, uh, interestingly enough, we've already sold out all of the um, tabletop exhibits, and, and so you've got how many, 25, 30 exhibitors? 30. We've got over 30 exhibitors of uh, uh, both uh, nonprofit organizations as well as service clubs that are going to talk about international service work that they've been doing. Tick off a few of them. I know a few of them. I've met a few. I, I, I know that uh, Med Global is going to be there. Med Global is definitely going to be there, and they're going to be participating in the panel discussion. Uh, we also have uh, organizations like U4, U4 Uganda, uh, Watts of Love. There are two organizations that actually – uh, got together at the conference last year and learned about each other and partnered with each other to do more work around the world together. So it's a good, it was a good thing. And Watts of Love is an organization I've had on the program. They they bring lights to people who need them in relief situations around yep. the world. So they're probably working in Uganda now with these guys. I, I'm sure they are. 
We all, we also have service clubs. Uh, there will be other Rotarians that are there, but we have the Lions clubs uh, as well that are going to be displaying some of the work that they do around the world. So it's not just for Rotary. It's for all people that are doing good things in the world. Um, Chuck, you were going to say? Well, I was just going to say that, you know, our objective from the beginning was to bring together lots of not-for-profit organizations, NGOs, uh, private organizations that are doing international service work. We found out last year, as, as Rich was just mentioning, that many of these organizations don't, don't really know about each other and have not worked together. And so bringing them together in a summit like this gives them an excellent opportunity to learn about each other, learn how they can share resources and actually do a better job in whatever they're doing around the world. So uh, it's been a great uh, opportunity for these organizations to find ways to collaborate and improve what they're doing. And you know all about this. You founded an organization called uh, Schools for Children of the World. That's right. Um, You're an architect, and, uh, and you build schools for people. Yes, we've been uh, – Schools for the Children of the World has, has built over 120 schools in 11 different countries working with different communities. And so uh, one of the things I noticed is every time you, you get on a plane to go to one of these countries, you see that maybe half of the people on the plane are actually – uh, service groups that are going to help, and uh, so it, it. But we never uh, saw any evidence of them collaborating or working together. So one of the ideas was to provide a summit or a way for them to come together and and again share resources and uh, um, and this is also a way for people who are interested in getting involved in international service work to meet some of these groups and they may be able to find a group that. Uh, is interesting to them, and they may want to volunteer in some way, either traveling with this group to another country or, or helping them in other ways as volunteers. Um, so it really is intended to be for everybody to allow people to get more involved in international service work. We're talking about the International Service Summit. It's coming up on April 6th at Benedictine University in Lyle with Chuck Newman and Richard Tatara. They're uh, the co-chairs of the summit. And you've got a nice headline uh, talk. Uh, Wendy Perlman from Northwestern University is going to be your headliner, Richard. Yes, Wendy uh, uh, has written four books uh, on uh, Middle East politics and is uh, going to be talking about uh, a book that she wrote, uh, We Crossed a Bridge and It uh, Trembled, Voices from Syria. Uh, we're very excited about Wendy's uh, uh, keynote speech, and we're going to look to expand from that uh, on our overall theme of international service as a catalyst for peace uh, with our panel discussion as well to try and look at ways that organizations can enhance peace by providing service in areas that really uh, are uh, right now facing significant conflicts. So it, it, uh, it'll be a very interesting panel discussion to see uh, how we can uh, expound on that. We have uh, 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 Dr. Zahir Shalul uh, from MedGlobal, who is uh, uh, also uh, doing a lot of work in very difficult areas in, uh, in Syria and around the world. Uh, MedGlobal uh, uh, organizes doctors to go in and do uh, medical surgeries in uh, places of conflict, relief areas, and so forth. 
uh, and uh, actually is going to be leaving later that day to go to Lebanon and then on to Kurdistan, Iraq to do uh, work there. So we're very excited about having him as part of the panel. Didn't uh, Jerome uh, suggest him as a panelist? Jerome did. did. So (laughs) thank you. Thank you for that, Jerome. I've been friends with him for a while, and uh, he uh, was with the Syrian American Medical Society for many years and got that organization really fired up and now wants to do it all over the world. That's amazing. And he was named Chicago End of the Year by, by Chicago magazine not too long ago. But beyond that, we also have uh, Rod Beadle, who leads the Engineers in Action organization, which is a, a group that does civil projects around the world. Uh, we have Rick Burns from the Caradaw Project. Uh, Rick was a major in the Army in uh, Iraq and uh, came back to the U.S., retired, and wanted to give back to Iraq a, a village of Caradaw. And he has been doing economic development work uh, with, the village, uh, with the villagers on, uh, uh, through his foundation. Uh, and uh, we also um, uh, are, are uh, looking to uh, have uh, the Watts of Love people participate, hopefully, in our panel discussion. So we're really excited about looking at uh, what international services is from a variety of different uh, aspects uh, through uh, the various participants. How did you guys get to this point with the Rotary Club in Naperville that you wanted to do this? Um, usually Rotary Club's... Uh, you know, they have their projects, but they don't do something like this. Well, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so you want me to take that? I'll, I'll let Chuck start with that because Chuck is a Chuck good example. Chuck is a good example of yeah. uh, of, of someone a troublemaker uh, of someone who has, <laughs> does good in the world and uh, has started his own foundation. Chuck. Well, I think uh, again, as I mentioned, we saw so many groups that were doing work. Um, uh, in in other countries, and we saw very little collaboration or 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 um, uh, any way for them to work together, and and there just seemed to be a need to try to provide a vehicle for these people to come together and exchange ideas, and so it was our international service uh, committee of the Rotary Club of Naperville that in itself is very active. That we started, we actually started talking about this a few years ago about, okay, how can we bring these organizations together and really provide a forum for them to uh, be able to share ideas as well as for people who are, you know, there's lots of people who have never traveled internationally, never had an opportunity to work with a service organization. So how can we provide them an opportunity to find out what's really going on and, and to identify groups that they may be able to or interested in working with? I love the uh, idea of development as a catalyst for peace. You're, you've got your eye on the ball. There, there's a, a, a right focus there. Yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, uh, again, you know, when we were talking about the theme for this year, you know, we talked about, you know, there just seems to be so much um, um, conflict in the world um, and and a need for uh, bringing peace in lots of different ways. And certainly as service organizations go to other countries and, and work with communities, begin to understand uh, the challenges that they face and and really talk to them and understand them as individuals and really try to help that really goes a long way to to helping to facilitate better understanding respect with each other and and um, create a sense of peace you know between the two different cultures and peoples and um, um, so we saw this as a great opportunity to 
to expand on that. Uh, explain what the day will be like on April 6th uh, there at Benedictine University in Lyle. So our doors open at 8 o'clock uh, at the Godwin Hall or Goodwin Hall of Business on Benedictine University's campus in Lyle. Uh, 9 o'clock, uh, we'll start our plenary session, and the exhibits will close, and everyone will come together to listen to Wendy Perlman as the keynote, uh, followed by Jerome leading the panel discussion, uh, and that'll take about two hours. Uh, that will be followed then by the exhibits being open for another two hours with the uh, program wrapping up uh, around 1 o'clock. At 12.30, uh, we will have a foreign service officer from the Department of State who will give a small breakout session on issues regarding travel in foreign countries. Many of our uh, participants, uh, we anticipate, go to areas that are not exactly the normal tourism spots. And the Department of State is going to talk about ways they support people when they go travel in these areas as well. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to it. The um uh, do you want to wait? Well, I was just going to add also that Wendy will have a book signing, and she's got she's uh, her book's been tremendously successful. It was on the books. cover of this one was on the cover of the New York Times Book Review and all the yeah. rest. And so she'll be there to do a book signing. She'll participate in the panel discussion. Uh, we will have books for sale in cooperation with Anderson's Bookshops from Naperville. Yes, they're, they're so nice. <laughs> they have been wonderful partners. Uh, we're also going to have representatives there from the Peace Corps who have actually been actively involved in, and anyone who's interested in becoming involved in the Peace Corps would, would be willing to able to talk to them about maybe participating. Uh, so there's lots of opportunities for guests to become involved. Special rate for students at $5. <laughs> now, the, you've got your own website, uh, internationalservicesummit.org? That's correct. Internationalservicesummit.org. And I'll look forward to seeing you both on April 6th at Benedictine University. Thanks for joining me, Chuck Newman and Richard Tatara, talking about the International Service Summit in um, Lyle, but it's done by the Rotary Club of Naperville. Thanks a lot for joining us, guys. I'll see you in a, in a, in a, in a bit here. Thank you, Jerome. Thank you, Jerome. Tomorrow, I'll talk with Idan Rachel, and uh, is, he's a famous Israeli musician who's performing in town this weekend at City Winery. Also, we're going to talk with Jane Goodall, who is in town this week, too. So stay tuned for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.